The Weeds is supported by Goldman Sachs. To learn about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy, subscribe to the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Harry's Razors. We've got a special offer for fans of the show. They're going to give you $5 off your first purchase with promo code WEEDS. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. And make sure you use promo code WEEDS at checkout to let them know who sent you. This week's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by The Great Courses. And now Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Understanding Investments, for free. That's a $215 value when you just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hashtag Obamacare for financial planning. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by my colleague Ezra Klein. Sarah Cliff is remarkably still on vacation. Wow, wow. Which feels like it's been a long time. I hope she's having fun. Every week without Sarah on The Weeds is an eternity. It does feel like a lifetime. We've been here in this small room together for like two weeks. Yeah. Constantly. Oh. I just prepping for the show and it's, it's terrible. Turns out Matt is very good at 20 questions. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a little voting in the primaries last night. A smidge night. of voting. Yeah, a smidge, a smidge of voting. And I think we wanted to talk not so much about the election race. But one thing that came up a lot in the course of this campaign is that New York State has a closed primary. Only registered Democrats can can vote in it. And unlike some other closed primary states, they take an ungenerous view of this. There's, there's some states where you have to register as a Democrat or Republican to vote in that party's primary, but you can just kind of show up on day of right. and say, I think that's how DC works, in fact. It's closed, but nothing is actually closed off. New York's closed primary, along with some other northeastern states that are coming up, is sort of genuinely closed. You have to have registered months ago into the party you want to vote for. So if you were not that interested in voting in Democratic Party primaries and then Bernie Sanders made you interested over the past few months, you can't vote for him. And the same for for Donald Trump. Since Trump won, he did a little less complaining about this, but like his own daughter was not eligible to vote for him in the primary. But, But to connect some things here, Trump in his victory speech complained or at least offered the Republican Party a warning about a brokered convention. And I think these things actually converge in an interesting way. I think that we are seeing across a variety of dimensions, the primary process, which includes caucuses and, and conventions and all the rest of it are a lot less small d democratic than, than people think. And, and a lot of that I think tends to get papered over because by the end of the process, there isn't usually a very good reason for one side or another to contest the outcome. By the end of the process, the front runner has usually racked up the most delegates, has usually really started dominating in the polls, has the most official party support. And so it isn't really in anybody's interest to be complaining about the rules of potentially brokered conventions, to be upset about how the New York primary works or any of the rest of it. But we have a situation here where Sanders is falling further and further behind in delegates, but his national poll numbers are actually rising. Donald Trump is clearly in the lead in the Republican primary, but there is real talk that he could be denied the nomination in a a contested convention. 
And as such, all of a sudden, a lot of the things that we usually ignore in primaries are, are coming to the fore. Well, so I, I sort of want to complicate this a little bit. because Really? Because I thought that was pretty complicated. It doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> seem to me that there's any reason at all that the nominating processes should be democratic. And I don't think that the any of the campaigns are in a particularly diligent or consistent way arguing that they ought to be made democratic. Agreed. What they're doing is they are arguing opportunistically yep. against rules that happen to disfavor them. What's interesting about American political culture, and, and Larry Bartels has a good weird ranty essay. I think he got it published in a journal, but it's like more like a blog post than a real political science. Oh, that sounds like the kind um, of political science I'm, I'm looking I, but, for. But I, but I really love Love it. And he, he just points out that like in America, it's like the only political reform you are ever allowed to argue for is more democracy. You can never say there's some other problem with this, like it's just leads to bad outcomes. And so you're relentlessly driven toward increasing the, the level of democratic legitimacy. And, and this is the day things. Matt became a neo-reactionary. No, but I mean, <laughs> well, there's a couple of different things. But, but so just particularly, I think you see you see this very clearly on the Democratic side. Sanders has done really, really well in caucuses, right. which are hideously undemocratic. Yes. But he does poorly in restrictive voting closed primaries, which are also undemocratic. I guess I would say a little less so, but right. I mean, they, they do, limit. Do you want to stop for a minute to yeah. go and say why caucuses are undemocratic? Because I'm not sure. I'm not sure, sure that is intuitive to people. So for one thing, some of these caucus states themselves are closed. The way a caucus works is you've got to show up and give up hours of your day to go sit around and like kibitz with other people. Listen to uh, but, people give speeches about candidates. Yeah. And the idea of caucuses originally was to accomplish something actually similar to closed primaries. The idea was that only people deeply involved in the state party would bother to show up to a caucus. So the hope of reformers at the McGovern-Fraser reforms, which spurred the creation of, of some of these caucuses, their hope was that what was going to happen is you were going to get a lot of sort of like earnest issue activists were going to come to this like big old meeting and they were going to talk about like, what is the Idaho Democratic Party going to do and, and blah, blah, blah. What really has wound up happening is that people only show up to these things because they care about the presidential campaign. But so it lends itself to sort of more, quote unquote, inspirational candidates like Sanders this year and Obama in 2008. But it's also very favorable to, I, I don't want to say in a disparaging way, but like college kids and just like other people. People who don't have families. People with a lot of time to waste, right? Like if you work a job where like your job is to be at the cash register for a certain shift. Right. You just can't vote in a right. caucus, right? And so you can you can finagle this. So in, in Nevada, in a way, they made the caucus even less democratic, but in some ways more participatory by saying that there are special caucus locations on the Las Vegas Strip that casino workers can go to and the labor union that represents the casino workers has special provision in their contract that people can go off and caucus. So like in Nevada, working class retail shift workers generally can't vote, but members of 
the hotel and restaurant workers union can. Anyway, so it's been beneficial to Sanders. Sanders is the type of candidate who does well in caucuses. People feel that he's a cause and he has the demographic profile, young people who don't have a lot of responsibilities in life. And if they happen to feel strongly about the campaign can blow a hole. And so what he does in caucuses, just I think to be clear on this, he outperforms his polling in those states. So, So compared to what he does in primary states, where Sanders polls and where he finishes in a caucus state, he tends to get more delegates than his initial polling would suggest. Right. And and this is a particular thing where Democrats allocate delegates proportional. But one thing that particularly seems to happen in these caucus states is that a psychology of futility takes over, where like it's obvious that Hillary is going to lose in these sort of Plains caucus states. So she doesn't campaign there much to try to reduce the emphasis on it. So then people really don't want to show up to like right. go in this time consuming, losing, demoralizing process. Because also it's more demoralizing to lose a caucus, right? If you are if you are a participant in a caucus, like what you are doing is you are sitting there and let's say you're a Hillary Clinton fan and you are coming in and instead of just like voting for Hillary Clinton and leaving, you are hearing like 80 Sanders supporters, well, not 80, but but a number of Sanders supporters that give these long speeches. And you were looking around a room where there are like 15 Sanders supporters and four Hillary supporters. And it just sucks. It's unpleasant. Right. So not to say any of this is the worst yeah, thing not in, unfair. The, in, in the, the world, exactly. But this has been a big source of advantage to Sanders during this particular fabled run of, of wins that he's put together. And, you know, he, he didn't mind it. And Hillary people... We're making no actual effort to change this, but we're spending a lot of time snarking about the caucuses. Then you come to New York, which limits participation in a way that has the complete opposite valence. A lot of Sanders voters are what we've come to call negative partisans. They are people with left-wing political ideas who really, really don't like Republicans because of their left-wing political ideas, but who don't particularly like the Democratic Party right. either. So they have never been inclined to like go register as official Democrats or necessarily vote in previous Democratic primaries. Whereas Clinton has a, a strong base of support among African Americans, among older people, the kind of people with whom that negative partisanship dynamic is less less of a thing. Or to put it differently, people who are more part of the Democratic Party Democrat, and yeah. tied to more institutions within the Democratic Party. Yeah, exactly. Right? Hillary's strength among union members speaks to a strength among people tied to institutions that are tied to the Democratic Party. Exactly. So so it turns out that New York's rules actually succeed in achieving what the caucus system was meant to do but has actually failed at, mm-hmm. which is exaggerating the power of party regulars and veteran activists. And so that's been very, very, very beneficial to her. And it looks likely that it will benefit her in a bunch of other sort of mid-Atlantic states that have a, a similar system. Both sides complain about a lack of democracy when it disadvantages them. And most likely, the ratchet is going to move. I mean, I don't think Democrats are going to scrap all closed primaries everywhere, but there has been a, a renewed salience to this attention. My guess is that if any states change their system, and usually someone does change, it will be toward creating more openness because nobody wants to say what I will say, which is that democracy is about voting in general elections. Nominating systems are about producing good nominees. And 
open primaries, I think, were a reasonable idea at a particular point in time to improve the quality of the nominees that the parties were getting. But the situation has changed, and I think it's much more likely now that that closed primaries will produce the desired result. Well, do you want to say why why you think that? Well, so if you look at when open primaries started to be be a fad, one big place where they came in was the South. And it was driven a lot by Republicans in the South, who I think correctly realized that an important part of the national Republican Party presidential base in the 80s was older conservatives living in the South who were members of the Democratic Party. But those were actually a core element of the Ronald Reagan coalition. And they wanted those people to be able to participate in the primary process. And I think not as a question of abstract fairness, but as a question of actually how is the party going to make a good decision and forcing those kind of older conservative Southern Democrats to rethink their personal identity, to be able to participate in the question mm-hmm. of who will be Ronald Reagan's successor was just not going to work. And you were going to have a really sort of disproportionately a Republican Party that was out of step with reality. Right. This was a period of time when you had something that's almost like the opposite of the negative partisan. Exactly. You had somebody who liked the party they were for, but didn't fear the other party and actually preferred the other party's candidate. Yeah, yeah. And then you had another thing which was prominent on the Democratic side at that time where Democrats worried that their nominees were going to be too liberal and, and they wanted to win elections. At that time, the typical independent was a kind of floating voter who might go one way or the other. And what they wanted to do was let independents get into the process to help moderate candidates come in and win. I think we've seen in, in recent years that, and we've we've posted about this a, a bunch on Vox, but there's like no correlation between people deciding to self-identify as independents and then behaving like people with moderate ideologies or then behaving like people who are up for grabs. Swing voters, non-party identifiers are just sort of less connected, but they're not ideologically in the center. And you see that on the Democratic side this year, right? It's not that independents are coming out to vote for Hillary Clinton because she's the more moderate nominee. Independents are coming out to vote for Bernie Sanders because they're too left-wing, they're too disconnected to want to affiliate as Democrats. So on the on the Democratic side, at any rate, this year, the closed primaries are accomplishing what Democrats used to want to accomplish with open primaries, which is to say helping the more moderate, more electable candidate win. So I want to push on this. There are a bunch of things I want to talk about in terms of how is it going to play out in this election. But I want to argue with you a little bit about whether the objective structural situation now pushes towards closed primaries. So one thing I don't want to do is overread the dynamics of Sanders versus Clinton. Right. So it, it is completely true that voters who do not identify with the Democratic Party but vote for Democrats are, are favoring Sanders this year. But they favored Obama in 2008. I think Obama probably was a little bit more liberal than Clinton, but I don't think that was actually the the real cut in the primary. And I think this, this has much more to do with an establishment versus anti-establishment dynamic. But even if it doesn't, I'm not sure we know how it would play out over the course of five or six elections. So, so I want to be a little bit careful in saying first that we are, are sure about what kinds of candidates would be would be valued by this process. Because I, I'm not sure what we're seeing is a triumph of moderation here with Clinton. I think we might be seeing to some degree a triumph of just party 
structures, which, you know, you can, I think, debate whether you want that to dominate. But then I, I think the, the question of negative partisans is actually important here. We are in a period of time where the reliability of voters in terms of their partisan preference is higher than it's ever been, but the party allegiance of voters in terms of their affiliation is lower than it's ever been. And that is a moment that, that is weird in many ways, but insofar as we want primary decisions to reflect more than an increasingly unrepresentative group of people who really attach themselves to parties. I think you do want to open it up to those negative partisans or those less attached voters. And one reason I think you want to open it up to them is that, and this relates to dynamics I think that have been more salient really in the Republican race and the Democratic race. One reason you want to open it up to them is that if the party ends up drifting too far from a very large faction of its supporters, then the long-term outcome of that can be very unpredictable, like as in, as in Donald Trump. And I think in the Republican Party, you've had a situation where the party was able to exert enough control over candidates, over nominating processes that despite the fact that much of its base had become more economically populist, much more anti-immigrant and somewhat more, more nationalist in its approach to politics, the party structure was pushing towards a more Marco Rubio kind of candidate that was more open to immigration, less economically populist and, and, and so on, or Mitt Romney kind of candidate in that way as well, or John McCain before them. And I don't think you want to see those dynamics persist over time. And if as people get more and more frustrated with parties, which seems to me to be the direction things are going, if you close down party nominating processes, the distance between who the parties nominate and who many of their voters want nominated is going to get larger, not smaller. Now, I could see within here an argument to say that the problem here is weakening of parties and Closed primaries give people an incentive to join the party. I just don't buy that that will be a big enough effect to offset the fact that you're having a lot less input in the decision-making process from people who ultimately, for the party to be a healthy party, is going to need to be appealing to. Okay, so two things. One, I mean, I agree that I don't want to make some like long-range forecast or say like closed primaries are awesome and everybody should do them. Just to say that I actually think that People's thinking about this is being driven by short-term instrumentalism. Yes, I agree. And then they want to back up and reach for principles of democracy. But I really want to encourage them to not back up and reach for principles of democracy. That thinking about nominating rules instrumentally is the correct way yes, to I think about that. it. And you should – own your instrumentalism and say that what you want is rules that are conducive to the kinds of nominees that you want. I think the fact that the New York State closed primary is helping the more moderate, more party regular candidate win is in fact a completely sufficient justification for it. Now, if you don't like the idea of party, you know, that that's different. Right. There's this question you raised about alienation from the parties and sort of should we should we give in to that and just say that like, okay, it's it's going to be a free for all. You don't need to be a member of a party to influence what it's doing because people don't want to be members of parties versus I do kind of think that you need to try to think of ways to put the genie back into the bottle. I'm not sure that closed primaries with a very long registration lead time, the way Democrats do it in New York, accomplishes anything in that regard. I do think that closed primaries with same day switching or, you know, maybe week long buffer 
does sort of help do that. It like says to people, okay, if you want to vote for Bernie Sanders, you totally can. We are not going to stop you, but first sign up to join the political party. But but let me push because this Mm -hmm. is where I think this actually makes sense. And it's an argument by the Bernie Sanders himself makes, although I'm not sure how True it is, but I think it was definitely true for Obama. One argument that Sanders makes about why the Democratic Party should nominate Sanders is that these Hillary Clinton super Democratic voters, they're just going to be Democrats one way or the other. The Sanders voters are more nominally attached and and in other ways increasingly, possibly because of this bitter primary, increasingly skeptical of the party establishment. And so when you ask what would it take to bring these people in and to put that genie back in the bottle, I think the place that leads you is a nominating process that can find candidates who on the one hand appeal enough to the Democratic Party regulars, which in this case it looks like Sanders has not done, but on the other hand appeal to this world of voters. Because if that candidate then became the nominee and then became the president, that would tie them to the Democratic Party to some degree through the person of that nominee. I think it's clearly not necessarily been a lasting phenomenon. But I think it's clear that Obama did this to some degree with young voters in 08 and then again in 2012. Now, the, you don't see that happening in midterms, but there's a very, very, very sharp shift from the patterns we saw in 04, right. um, it, which looks at this point to be somewhat persistent and the patterns we saw in 2000 as well. And so I, th- I do think that for bringing people into the party, for bringing these unattached folks into the party, the way they're going to come in is not rules. It is they're going to have some kind of tribune, somebody they get excited about who leads them into the party. Right. I mean, I agree. And so you want things where that's easier to do. Right. But I but I do think that still having it be a closed primary, even if it's a, a permeable closed primary, is better in that regard, right? The best outcome for me would be if Bernie Sanders could bring non-Democrats to the polls, the way Bernie Sanders himself was just hanging out in Congress, caucusing with, quote unquote, the Mm -hmm. Democrats, but not being one. But then he decided he wanted to run for president. So he had to join the party. Right. But it wasn't like New York style. He didn't have to travel back in time and join the party. So you're saying that you're you're not saying that you want New York style primaries. You're saying you want new I think like New Hampshire style primaries. I'm not. Uh, yeah, I think I'm not sure which is which. But what you're saying is that the problem with the New York primary is not its closed status, but the space of time in which you need to it, register. It's that Democrat. it was literally impossible. I think a good thing would be to say, like Bernie Sanders, you and your campaign, if you want to take these non-affiliated liberals and power them to victory, you have to bring them into the Democratic Party. Right. What New York did was it made it actually impossible. Right for him to bring them into the Democratic Party. But what too many states do is they like don't even make you bring them in. I, I think that's totally reasonable. I want to back up to another part of this I think is, is interesting and is potentially going to be important in this particular election. Something that you have said a couple times here is that there is an opportunism to the arguments people are making. And there is. There mm-hmm. absolutely is. Bernie Sanders has won a number of closed mm-hmm. primaries and caucuses without complaining about how unfair they are. And he was not campaigning against this kind of thing during his time in Congress. He's won a bunch of caucuses, which, as you say, are are also very exclusionary, and he does not have a problem with caucuses. So some of this has been found on the fly. And then his campaign manager, Jeff Weaver, came out and said their new plan was that even if they're behind in in delegates, to win by turning superdelegates. And so on the one hand, you have Bernie Sanders saying, hey, the problem is this is not democratic enough. And then on the other hand, saying, hey, we're just going to ignore the will of the voters and just use superdelegates to flip the outcome, which is not going to happen. Superdelegates overwhelmingly favor Hillary Clinton. But on a principles level, I think it shows how malleable these principles really are. But one thing I think you're 
you're seeing, and you're seeing it on, and this is why I brought Trump in the discussion earlier, is that the different states do these elections so differently. Yes. With so little, particularly on the Republican side. Particularly on the Republican side, but also on the Democratic side, caucuses versus primaries, open versus closed. And then you have the conventions with superdelegates, particularly on the Democratic side, with the ability to change the thing if nobody gets a majority on the first ballot. And what that gives a campaign that is sort of competitive late into the primary and does not want to give up is the ability to find a lot of these opportunistic arguments that to motivated supporters are very, very convincing. Yes. So one of our, our reporters, Jeff Stein, had gone to Ithaca, New York, which is super Bernie Sanders country, and talked to a lot of people there. And Bernie Sanders supporters there just don't believe a lot of the election results. They believe Hillary Clinton's Delegate lead is all superdelegates, which is not the case. They are open to the idea that it's voter fraud or it's all just rules. I, I did a Facebook chat the other night and people were saying, wasn't this just about you know the, the exclusionary rules of, of closed primaries? And what's happening there is I think that Sanders himself is encouraging his supporters to think of the primary as illegitimate by highlighting parts of the primary system that are strange and different in the places he's losing. Clinton does not at the moment have a really strong incentive to do this. But I think that you know if this, this shoe were on the other foot, I think they very well might be doing right. something similar on caucus states. Donald Trump is out there saying that the way conventions work is illegitimate. And if the Republican Party does that, Republicans should basically riot. And so just one thing I think we're seeing in, in a year where we've seen a lot of different spaces in which party institutions institutions are maybe weaker than we thought, is it this tremendous variance across the country that appears to be based from place to place on no kind of consistent principles or easy, transparent process that you can track backwards very simply, is it creates a real opportunity for one candidate or another to delegitimize outcomes. And when you delegitimize outcomes, that really does radicalize supporters, right? That really does make your supporters feel that it's one thing to watch your candidate lose. It's another thing to feel like your candidate was robbed by a corrupt party establishment. And so one, I think Sanders himself is playing with a little bit of fire here. But but two, I, I do think something that I've become more tuned to as a possible failure point, maybe not in this election, but in, but in some election, is that the absolute seemingly arbitrary random nature of these different contests really creates an ability for campaigns, particularly campaigns that are on the losing side of these rules, to contest their legitimacy in ways that is very persuasive, certainly to their supporters. Yeah, although, I mean, I would just say, if you go way back in American history to the, the previous century, you, you may recall that Al Gore uncontroversially got more votes than George right. W. Bush, even less controversially, the median voter selected Al Gore. Somewhat controversially, his supporters intended to vote for him in Florida or, or didn't. And, and it just... It happened to be the case that the leadership of the Democratic Party at that time chose not to make a big deal out of this. Right. And that's why the United States today has a functioning political system with a rule of law is that like leaders of the Democratic Party decided that principles of democracy were not important to them, that the concrete interests of their constituents were not important to them, that like being nice guys and saying, you know, we fought and we lost fair and square was what was important to them. At the time, I was really angry that they made that decision. Now that I'm more of an old fogey, I sort of see it as wise and statesmanlike and really admire Al Gore for going gently. But the political system is just, it is so fraught with those kind of fail points right. that I actually think that this diciness around the presidential nominations is not that 
salient of one. It happens to be the case that because the primaries are so freaking long, you have like a lot of time for the candidates to like toy with these things. Hillary's campaign in in 2008, they ran with a a lot of these kind of ideas here and there and like trying to seat this Michigan delegation that was barred by the rules because they had actually voted and that caucuses weren't fair and that superdelegates were going to help them and and blah, blah, blah. And in the end, they stepped away from it, which is what I think Bernie Sanders will do. But the only point I'm making, I agree that Bernie Sanders will, if he's not winning, will step away from this. But I do think that these kinds of delegitimizing arguments are actually, they're very powerful among supporters, right? Because they they create a rationale for what happened that isn't fair and square. Yes, but something that you see is that- Like I have some very, very, very intense Bernie Sanders supporters in my family. Right. And so I get this in my email when I wake up in the morning every day. And- very, very, very upset. Like the the feeling that, that that they have is that there is a like a robbery happening here, like a like a literal miscarriage of democratic justice. Wait, but but I read this the other way because yeah. based on my dialogue with Sanders supporters, they are at. 10 out of 10 on like legitimate beefs with the democratic process, uh-huh. and also 10 out of 10 on totally made up shit. The people who are convinced that the only reason Bernie lost New York was that the primary is closed, which is wrong, but like plausible and grounded on a real procedural objection, also think superdelegates are the only reason Hillary has a lead in the delegate count, which is false. They also think Bernie has overtaken Hillary in national polls, which is false. They think that Arizona was a result Although, of. Get, we'll see in a week. I mean, they're but getting, yeah, close, getting, getting but, 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 I mean, they, but I mean, but yes, there's it, an it information is, they, structure that is co- as we've seen in a, in a million places, right? So I heard that Arizona voted for Hillary not because there's a large Latino population, but because of massive voter fraud. I mean. Who knows? Maybe it is. Because I've also heard that the whole mainstream media is completely in the tank for Hillary Clinton, which I think is actually the opposite is true. I think the mainstream media has been complicit in creating a sort of fake narrative of a close primary contest for the sake of traffic and, and ratings. I think it is bad that people get this sort of toxic mental state that the candidate that they are very emotionally invested in is being cheated out of the nomination. But it seems to me that that is not that driven by facts in reality. And that I think it's unfortunate. I feel like the stakes in recent Democratic primaries have been kind of low compared to how they've been in the past. Like in 1984 and 1988, your candidates really smacking each other over like gaping ideological and conceptual divides right. in what they wanted to do. Whereas in, in 2008, and then even more so in 2016, I feel like you've had a lot of whining about process and a lot of like characterizations of who is supporting the other opponent because there sort of isn't a meaningful disagreement about... The, the, the campaigns do not agree. Another way of putting this, I think, is the campaigns do not agree on what the disagreement of this primary is. Yes. Right? To to some extent, there was an agreement in 2008 that Barack Obama had opposed the Iraq war and Hillary Clinton had supported it and was more hawkish than he was. And there was an agreement that Barack Obama had a health care plan without an individual mandate and Clinton had one with an individual mandate. And that was a place where I think Clinton and Obama ideologically were actually quite near to each other. Yes. But there was more 
directional differences. Whereas in this primary, I think, and this is to some degree a bit of a strategy of Clinton's, where I think sometimes she will fuzz this stuff up. Yes. But there's a lot of, well, I support that too. I just have a more realistic plan to get us on the path there while you're playing. You know what I mean? So you're, you're getting into a little bit of a fuzzy thing. The last debate was full of this kind of thing. But, but I do think to, to maybe just make the other point a slightly different way. The reason I worry sometimes about if the Electoral College came up a lot, I'd worry about the Electoral College for sure. But the reason I worry about this stuff is that I think that we are in an extended era in which trust in major institutions, that it is important for people to have some level of faith in, has been going down. It's been going down for decades and decades and decades. And then when you have within these institutions a bunch of fail points that when everything doesn't go right – all of a sudden, there are a lot of reasons for completely reasonable people to feel mistrustful of what's going on because the actual processes do not make sense in some fundamental way. Like if everybody had a closed primary and every closed primary you need to be a Democrat four months before the cutoff, I actually don't think there'd be – people would be arguing about mm-hmm. this because it would feel like, OK, well, that's just how this particular game works. It's the fact that all the things are different. So you have – States like New York that are real outliers on something that creates this. And so I agree with you that I think this happens in a lot of primaries. And I and I also agree with you that there is only so much that could have been protected here. But I, I do think this kind of thing, much like the debt ceiling fight of a couple right. of years ago, much like for that matter, the Electoral College stuff in 2000, the voter ID laws, you begin to see the inclusion of super PACs. I just think you're seeing a, more and more and more reasons that completely reasonable people will, in different circumstances, come to feel this game is really rigged. He- and I think that when you look at this election and you look at the support for Sanders and you look at the support for Trump and you look at how many people feel this game is already super rigged. I think that should make you long-term concerned about trend lines here. Yeah, although here's the problem. I was talking to a Sanders supporter about this and I was saying one really quick, easy, transparent, everyone would understand it way to eliminate 100% of these system rigging complaints about the sequencing of the southern states and all this stuff would have been to have just held a national primary on February 5th that Hillary would have won in a huge landslide. And in fact, everyone agrees is that the long sequencing primary, the starting with small, cheap states, that, mm-hmm. that all that stuff makes insurgent campaigns possible. Right. Totally right? That agree. if you had a broad national primary, the sort of front runner would just win all the time. And so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, may- maybe that's the answer. Like, maybe we can have our cake and eat it, too, by making the system cleaner, simpler, and more democratic. The party establishment candidate will win more reliably, and we'll have less of this sort of hurt feelings and so on and so forth. But I actually think people find there to be something valuable in creating a system that I think fundamentally loads the dice against establishment candidates and means that we have to have a meaningful dialogue every year. You know, so even a dominant candidate like Al Gore in 2000 had to face down Bill Bradley in like these two weird crappy states that he could drive around in into like a tiny little car with no staff and mount a real campaign in. And to me, there's something good about that. But it is problematic if the way people experience the establishment winning a tough campaign is that the system was rigged, whereas giving the establishment like a quick, easy, super early blowout would be like fair is fair. I mean, that's a sort of a tough one. And I think put some tension on do we value the process of like having a fight and seeing what the outsider can do and seeing that sometimes like with Barack Obama, 
you can get far enough inside, you know, as an outsider to right. like actually win and, and change things. And and to me, that's that's valuable. And the only way to address the kind of complaints that outsiders have would be to actually create a system that would be much more hostile to them. I think it's a good place to, to end the segment. So we're going to take a break and be right back with what is our next topic? Fiduciary rules, man. Oh, fiduciary rules. Yes. The best rules. Are they? This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Harry's Razors. You know, if you go into the drugstore, there's tons and tons of different things for sale there. But razor blades in particular are like under lock and key, stuck inside a plexiglass case. And when you think about it, you know, why that is, is because razors are so expensive and they're so overpriced. It's one of the things that people are most likely to go steal out of the store. Um, Good razors, they just, they cost an incredibly high amount of money. And that's why two guys, not so different from you, started Harry's.com. They sell high quality razor blades that provide a close, comfortable shave for about half the price that you're used to. I use these Harry razors that they sent me. Um, I love it. I've had a, a you know great experience uh, keeping my my face free of unwanted hair and not going through the sort of hassle and expense of traditional razor shopping. What makes Harry's you know really unique is they've got these German engineered five blades cartridges. They give you a close, comfortable shave. The quality is guaranteed. You get a full refund if you're not happy. The price is low because they've cut the middleman out. It ships directly to your door for about half the price of the leading brand. It's a very convenient sort of way to way to shop. You don't have to futz around, wait for the key, find the guy, uh, wrestle with the packages, find what you need on the website. It, it comes right to your house. Very convenient. So Harry's starter set is called the Truman. It's a great option for new customers. It's an amazing deal. For just $15, you get a handle, moisturizing shave cream, and three of Harry's five-blade German-engineered razors. Plus, we've got a special offer for fans of the show. They're going to give you $5 off your first purchase with promo code WEEDS. Go to Harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. And make sure you use promo code WEEDS at checkout to let them know who sent you. So I want to talk about a little non-campaign public policy news here. And last week, a sort of a, a rule came out regulation, perhaps, from the Labor Department that's really very important and will actually, in a way that's a little unusual for politics, is going to impact the broad swath of of middle-class Americans, not poor people. And they will probably never know it. Yes, you will probably not notice. But what this rule says is that investment advisors, when they give advice to clients, have to adhere to what's called a fiduciary standard, which is to say they have to give you advice that is in good faith in the best interest of the client. The way this turns up for for most people is that if you have a company 401k plan or if you just set up an IRA account with your bank, you will normally be set up with by the, the sort of financial firm that offers that service with an offer to meet for free with a financial planner or investment advisor to help you sort through your decisions about what you should do with your money. Those guys are actually, or up until this rule, they are salesmen. And it's like going into a car dealership, you know, where the guy's job is to talk you into buying the most expensive car you can because that's how the dealer makes money and then he gets paid on commission. The job of the quote-unquote advisor with your retirement account is to talk you into buying high-fee funds that will make a lot of money for the company he works for and then he will get paid a commission. But it's structured to be like this is a guy who's here to help you as if you were going to the doctor or something. So the rule changes that standard and if 
it is effective at all, which it seems like it, it will be, it should save people billions of dollars in the aggregate in a year in switching and, their, and, their money into lower fee vehicles. Talk about why. So, so to lower fee vehicles, I just want to spend a moment on why it would save people billions of dollars because I think this is a little bit opaque, right? For instance, what forces a advisor, even within the context of this rule, to steer you to lower fee vehicles? What happens if they don't? I mean, if we're just saying, hey, you got to work in the best interest, and they say, well, I thought that was the best interest. I think these high-risk investments are going to be great for people. What stops them from doing that? I mean, I think that what stops them from doing it ultimately is that it's going to impact the compensation structures that these companies are allowed to offer people. If you have people who are operating under a fiduciary system, you can't really be paying them on commission. What would the logic of that be? That's like a huge transparent red flag that is going to be caught by regulators who then go do it. That would be like one big change, right? You're going to eliminate the whole compensation structure of this industry. Once you do that, I think that in practice, you're simply going to not have as much interest in sending these people out in, into doing things. I'm not 100% sure what sort of after that kind of like big nuking of the industry, what does it look like five years later, right? right? Like how do you do spot enforcement? And as is a case in general with regulatory things, you never know if the next administration is just going to be like, eh, we don't really care about this anymore. Right. But in theory... We have a very, very sound body of research that shows that actively managed funds underperform passive funds. So you're not going to be able to claim in front of any kind of legal body that steering people into actively managed funds was acting in their best interest. So previously, they had been operating under what's called a quote-unquote a suitability standard, which sort of doesn't mean anything. And all you need to do there is show that you're not steering people into like frauds, that it's, right. you know, it's a legitimate vehicle. But, you know, acting in, in best interest is going to mean you have to put people into passive funds. Because passive funds are relatively easy to set up and easy to compare, there's more competition between them. And the fees you can make as a company just tend to be much much lower. It's possible you'd see some kind of collusion in the future. But there was a, a Bloomberg article showing that the trend has already been in this direction. People have heard this message about passive funds from every media outlet that I'm familiar with pretty constantly for 10 years. And money has already been moving in that direction. And it's only driven fees even lower down because people are starting to become more perceptive and, and shoppier about it. And so billions of dollars in revenue have already been lost to the the sort of switch in, into passive. And it looks like that is going to continue if this rule sticks. And there's actually a secondary loss to Wall Street, which is that not only do you collect lower fees on passive funds versus active funds, but active funds by their nature involve more trading. So mm -hmm. there's just work for the right, traders yeah. to do executing these deals. And there's going to be less of that too. And it's it's really just in dollar terms, a sort of staggering defeat for the industry. The political economy of it is actually pretty interesting. I'm somewhat surprised that this rule got through absent some kind of precipitating crisis because, you know, and this is something that the Obama administration has been telling people and is very proud of, but it is a scenario which you, you see sometimes in politics and usually means you lose where you have an industry that is very conscious they're getting this money. It does not want to lose this money. It does not want to lose these jobs. So they're going to 
pump up all the lobbyists they can. They're going to use like every member of Congress they can to call the administration. Like they will try to stop this. And then you have a very diffuse group of beneficiaries who doesn't even know this is happening, doesn't know what these rules are, doesn't know why it would be a good thing if they were changed, doesn't know the Labor Department controls this kind of thing. I mean, all over the board, there is very little mobilization on behalf of this rule, except from consumer advocacy groups or, or politicians like Elizabeth Warren. So that construction of political forces tends to mean the rule gets destroyed. In this case, it's actually meant that the rule passes, which is, you know, a fairly big, impressive regulatory maneuver for this late in a presidency. But something you wrote the other day I thought was pretty interesting uh, about this, which is that when you connect what's happening here with a couple other plays the administration is running, you don't have a world where they're trying to break up big banks the way Bernie Sanders would like them to, but you do have a rule where they are attempting to cut major profit centers and business lines of big banks. They're, they're trying to cut things they believe are propping up Wall Street and the financial industry without being actually productive for, for the economy. And that the cumulative impact of a bunch of these, particularly some of the tax changes they wanted to pass would pass, but the cumulative impact of these could be relatively substantial in simply cutting the incentives of Wall Street to be Wall Street, and, and that could lead it to, to shrink a bit. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that you see between this move, moves that they're making against tax shelters, higher capital requirements that they've levied, that they are making the financial services industry as a whole simply less lucrative. There's just less money in it. And then if you combine that with a non-policy change, which is just happened, which is that companies are doing fewer IPOs and are staying private longer. That's cut out another sort of big business line from the investment banking world. And the Volcker rule, which I forgot to mention in, in the article, but which restricts which kinds of entities can, can do which kinds of trading. And it's not, I think, on its own that big of a deal, but it's just it's another example of a sort of war of a thousand cuts against the industry. And this approach reflects a very different kind of idea from, from what you hear from, from Bernie Sanders because part of what the Obama administration is doing is that they, I think, really do believe that financial services is a legitimate line of, of undertaking. They think it's important for the United States to have deep and liquid capital markets. And and more to the point, I think they could enter into a discussion about what that means in a way that I'm not 100% sure Bernie Sanders uh, you know, even would want to or, or care to. But then part of that is that they have a view where they agree with the banking skeptics that there is a lot of sort of nonsense happening here. And what they are really trying to do is prohibit or discourage or tax or regulate away the nonsense and saving, people, banking, saving banking from the bankers. Well, just more like the way we regulate other industries, right. right? Where no one is like, nobody said, I hope, oh my God, these car factories are creating so much pollution. Let's not have car factories or like, let's break up the car companies, right? The idea was to regulate the conduct so that the factories would not be as polluting or the machines would be safe and not decapitate people or, or things like that. And that stems from the fact that everybody, I think, had like a broad consensus that it was legitimate for people to be manufacturing and selling automobiles 
even if they were upset about some of the specific conduct right. around it. And the Obama administration thinks there should be investment banks and it thinks there should be retail banks and it even thinks there should be big ones. And I think that they would admit off the record that they think in some ways it's better for them to be big than for them to be small. But they agree that the industry as a whole became extremely large in part on the basis of doing things that have no real value and that aren't connected to the useful things that that finance does. And they've been whittling away at them, chop, 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 chop. And that reflects a, a change in vision of the American economy from what you had when Bill Clinton was president, even though it's a, a fair overlap in intellectual continuity between the actual people. But when Bill Clinton was president, I think the administration really felt that financial services was just a good industry for the United States, that these were high-paying jobs. America was globally competitive in them. You know, manufacturing was going to Asia. It was going to Mexico. We had to move into high-value services. And that exporting financial services all around the world was like going to be part of the business of America. And I do think that the Obama administration has just looked on what happened in the intervening time and is much more skeptical of that. I mean, they're glad these companies exist. They want them to operate internationally, but they look both internationally and domestically a little askance at, at sort of some of the lines of business they've gotten into. All right. Speaking of lines of business, we have a paper of the week that speaks about the line of business we have gotten into. This week's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by The Great Courses. We've talked about The Great Courses a, a lot here before. We're really excited about The Great Courses Plus video learning service. It gives you unlimited access to this enormous library of Great Courses lecture series in tons and tons of fascinating subjects, everything from history and science all the way to cooking. We really want you to try The Great Courses Plus, so they're giving our listeners a special chance to watch one of their most popular courses, Understanding Investments, absolutely free. Understanding Investments is presented by award-winning professor of financial economics at Duke University, Connell Fullenkamp. The course explains the fundamentals of investing for people not familiar with the process, and it also covers a lot of sort of interesting areas that more experienced investors will find beneficial. With The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. And now Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Understanding Investments, for free. That's a $215 value when you just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. So we have a paper this week that I think is really fascinating. It's called the Filter Bubbles, Echo Chambers, and Online News Consumption. It's by Seth Flaxman, who is at the Department of Statistics at Oxford, and Justin Rao, and Sherrod Goel, and I'm probably butchering some people's names here. What the paper is trying to do is test a hypothesis that, that comes up a lot, which is that Online news consumers filter themselves into echo chambers that by using search algorithms, so Google, the more you search, the more Google knows what you like and hopefully is only showing you Vox content at this point. But but the result of that would be that you see content that comes from if you're a liberal from the liberal side of the aisle, if you're conservative from the conservative side of the aisle. If you're on social networks, you're probably friends with people who are like you. And so your feed, which is also algorithm driven, but is also driven by who you're friends with, is showing you things that are very congenial to you. And so what they find, they, they look into the web browsing histories for 50,000 US users who regularly read online news. And they find, and I'm quoting here, that social networks and search engines are associated with an increase in the mean ideological distance between individuals. So it is true that if you're reading online news a lot, 
that looks to be leading people to be more polarized. But they also find, they say somewhat counterintuitively, that these same channels also are associated with an increase in an individual's exposure to material from his or her less preferred side of the political spectrum. So two things are happening here simultaneously. One is that reading online news does polarize you, but the other is that it does not appear to put you in an echo chamber. In fact, compared to people who don't read online news, who are not searching for news or not getting news on social networks, you're actually seeing more things from the other side. It's just not changing your mind or moderating you at all. Now, one possibility is that people who are doing this, strong news consumers are already strong political partisans. And as such, when they read things from the other side, it doesn't do much to change their minds. But another possibility, which I find interesting, is that in my experience on social networks particularly, the fact that you are reading things from liberal sources or reading things from conservative sources doesn't mean you don't see things from the other side of the aisle. What it means is that the pieces you see from the other side of the aisle are hate reads. They're like the least convincing things. They're a politician on the other side saying the worst thing or someone from a magazine from a perspective you don't like writing a really noxious article. And so that what you're doing is you are reading things that are coded from the other side, but that even as you're doing that, what you're getting is a really, really terrible view of the worst work being published on the other side or the worst things being said. And that also increases your ideological distance. From what I could tell in the state, there's not really a way to separate that out, but it's something that I've always thought is a very possible mechanism here. Yeah. And, and I assume there's also just a certain amount of rubbernecking. Like there's one person who I am Facebook friends with who I, I'm not really real friends with at all, but I knew him well once upon a time uh, in, in the early days of, of Facebook. And as it happens, he's like a strong Donald Trump supporter. So I think the first time I like saw his like pro-Trump commentary and sharing, I liked it because I was like, that's that's funny because I don't know a lot of Trump supporters. And so I've like kept engaging with this guy's Trump content. And so now in Facebook's sort of nutty way of seeing the universe, our social graph keeps getting closer and closer together. And I'm seeing a higher and higher uh, proportion, I think, of his shares from obscure conservative outlets. And if I, I happen to be a professional, so I am aware that actually most conservative media is pretty hostile to Trump at this point. But what I am seeing is like not just conservative media, but like really dim-witted pro-Trump conservative media because I think it's funny. To an extent, I think that indicates both of the mechanisms that you're proposing, right? It's like you have to be pretty into politics to even think that it's funny to right. read stupid stuff from the other side, right? A normal person just wouldn't care. right? And so, yeah, it's like, you know, you can be this like, oh, I'm this consumer. You know, I see everything or I'm hate reading or, or I'm just dipping in, staying informed. I mean, I know lots of people who like to flip over to Fox News to watch election coverage because they're not regular cable news viewers, but they are liberals. And then when they want to put something on cable, like they want to see what Bill O'Reilly has to say about it. I mean, beyond the specifics, right? I mean, the lesson here, I think it just keeps being that it's like there is no exit from the realm of polarization. Certainly not unless you're really trying, right? right. Like, and, and the fact that you're seeing things on the other side does not mean that you are seeing the correct things on the other side. In fact, one of the really dangerous things I think about media polarization is that you can have an outlet that is actually not that far left or not that far right, 
but that in trying to appeal to a liberal or conservative audience is going to just in the sampling of stories it chooses in a world where there's always more things to cover than, than you can really cover is going to pick, let's say, a liberal outlet is going to pick stories where if it's covering things Republicans say, it's going to cover things Republicans say that maybe paint the Republican Party in a less flattering light. That's actually gotten a little harder this year because Donald Trump is the guy you would normally cover because he is a front runner and he's saying some really crazy things. But there are a lot of Republicans who are maybe um, – There's going to be a lot of Nebraska lawmakers yeah, says kind like, of stories. You're not seeing a lot of Ben Sass coverage or whatever. Right. And as such that you just that, – that the liberals reading that site are not – trying to get a bad impression of Republicans, but they're getting one just along the way. And similarly, when you're seeing stuff coming from the other side, it can be easy, and I see this a lot on Twitter and stuff, to something will go viral, and it'll go viral for bad reasons, and then it'll become like a definitional piece of how liberals think conservatives view X, or conservatives think liberals view Y, and it just isn't. It's an outlier. That's why you saw it in the first place. I talked to John Haidt a while back, who's a psychologist who specializes in political thinking. And I asked him, you know, how do you try to protect against this? And he had an interesting comment where he said, you want to find people who could belong to your tribe, which for a lot of like super intense news consumers is highly educated, is a certain style of political discourse. Maybe you're a populist, so you like more populist commentators, et cetera, but who have different opinions than you. Like you need to actually search out people who you can listen to, which is not what you are just going to get naturally. You're going to get things from people you can't listen to, convince you that the other side is out of your tribe, and that will just polarize you further. Some of this stuff gets funny because like, I'm not super familiar with, with Jonathan Haidt's work, and he came to my attention as a Twitter persona who appears to be part of a small tribe of extremely famous and apparently powerful white male tenured academics who spend a lot of time on Twitter whining about political correctness and how it's like, ruining all of their lives and, and things like that. And like, it reminds me that there's like polarizations, like, like many layers of it. You know, I think from the purposes of doing a research paper, it's like the easiest thing to do is to take like a broad left-right politics thing. But you see whenever you have like a primary campaign or you have some of these debates that don't cleave the partisan divide quite that well, the exact same dynamics seem to reassert themselves continuously, right? Whenever you have like an extended argument in the sort of performative realm of, of social media, people get very polarized. And again, not because they're cocooning, but oftentimes because they're nutpicking. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, very much because they're nutpicking. They're seeing the other side, but they're seeing a part of the other side that convinces them they don't need to listen to the other side. Right. So like Jonathan Chait is much more aware of the day-to-day goings-on of like left-wing campus racial justice activists than I am because he's obsessed with the evils of campus political correctness. Right. I have a <laughs> relatively like a scarce media diet of that kind of stuff and a sort of uninteresting, unpolarized opinion about it. But it's like when you get really hyped up about something, you do start paying a lot of attention to what the other side is doing and like often for the purposes of discovering what's really bad out there. And that's certainly where I got with my with my Trump buddies uh, from, from the New York real estate development community. And what I have never done, and I think a, a lot of us have, have never really done, specifically with that regard is like tried to go through that exercise with like, okay, where are not the quote unquote reasonable Republicans, but like where are the reasonable Trump people, right? Like who is the least blowhardy 
Trump supporter out there? Because I'm not like in a cocoon, we, isolated from I, Trump I've supporter. actually looked around for this, and it's been hard to find. It's been easy to find people who have non-Trump supporting Trump support. Yeah. Right. Like Trump is raising important issues kind of thing. I found a lot. Of, I've really yeah. done this exercise because I really wanted to get one of them to write a piece for Vox. And, and we got something like it from sort of a neo-reactionary guy, which is, is worth looking up on Vox. But it is very difficult to find people who really they're arguing they're making a really rigorous, calm argument for why Donald Trump would be a good president. Right. As opposed to like why they want to use Donald Trump as a missile against the political establishment or why like you're all assholes for not supporting Donald Trump. I mean, there's a lot of versions of Trump support, but it's actually funny how few of them among certainly the writing class boil down to, I think Donald Trump would be do a good job in this office. And even saw the New York Observer endorsed him recently. And like, that's like one of his first big, I think, paper endorsements. And their argument was that like, Donald Trump is a political superstar. And it's worth noting, the New York Observer's publisher, I think, is his son-in-law. Yes. So, I mean, that's why they really endorsed him. But their endorsement was Donald Trump is a political phenom, raising a lot of important issues. And we think that if he won the presidency, he'd be a completely different person. Right? right. We think that he'd be calm. He'd get better people around him. He'd lose his immaturity and this thin skinnedness he's shown in the primary. So like even there, even Trump endorsements have this quality of like refusing to actually make the case for Trump because I think it's to some degree a very hard case to make. But I do think that to, to that point about doing that exercise, it is worth – if you care about this in your diet, and, and maybe you don't, it's not, I think, a slam dunk that you need to. But if, if you care about this diet, it's worth finding three or four or five people a little bit the way you did with your, your Trump supporter and trying to train the ways you read news. If you have an RSS feed, it's very easy. You just put them in the RSS feed. But if you're like on Facebook, then you have to start liking their work. But people you can listen to who see things from a different perspective and try to get them a little bit more in your feed. I discuss this a lot. Uh, if you go back in the Weed archives, I did an interview with Ross Douthat, who's at the New York Times. And, and Ross comes from a very different perspective than I do, particularly on religious and family issues. But I find he's someone whose judgment I trust and who I can really listen to, even when I disagree with him. And I think a lot of us probably have people out there like that, but you've actually got to go find them. Although, I mean, this is where the, the sort of the tribes point, though, gets interesting with, with the Trump phenomenon. One thing that's nice about Washington, D.C. As, as a place to live is that because it's the capital of the country, right, there are lots of conservatives and Republicans to be found here working professionally in politics, which is not true of other sort of big coastal cities. If you live in the Boston area or the Bay Area or, or New York, you're going to find that people like you living similar kind of lifestyles to you structurally all have the same political opinions as you. In D.C., I mean, that definitely tends to be the case, but it is easier. Yeah, I mean, you and I used to be part of a libertarian poker game. Right. I mean, exactly. Because people are around. So, so you can get to know them and then you can see, I mean, uh, per this point that it's like, okay, these people are, are like human beings who I understand and relate to. And then they have like some different idea about Medicaid. And you can really hear right. the idea as, as an idea. The problem with that, though, is that if you're a liberal, conservatives who are relatable become very 
unrepresentative That's true of too. conservatives. So you can hear a really good argument about an abstract issue like Medicaid. But when you get into something like this primary, who am I for is just a much more gut level question mm -hmm. than like a big abstract question about ideas. And so you wind up with a group of people, you know, conservative intellectuals and policy professionals have a distinct take on yes. conservatism. Jeb Bush was a very popular figure. Right, exactly. Among many of them. Not yeah. all, but and, many of and, them. And Marco Rubio in some ways. Juggernaut. I mean, right. I mean, all sort of different iterations of it. And it turns out that rank and file conservatives in America seem to be really into Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and polarize between Trump and Cruz, largely on the basis of church attendance. It's much harder to sort of like hack into that right. kind of so thing. Would you only say, though, I think there are two different things you could be trying to achieve here. One is a sort of self-disciplining effort of making sure that your thinking is being challenged from interesting directions right. and that you are hearing arguments that are unlike the ones that you would naturally hear. And then another is a almost more informational or almost anthropological question of do you understand the party you're not part of? If you're a, a conservative, do you understand why liberals think what they think? If you're a liberal, do you understand what a, an average conservative thinks? And, and that punditry is often just in a general sense all across the board not the way to do that because pundits themselves are systematically biased towards being super highly educated, super cerebral, uh, having information sources that are very unusual. You know, right. they, they can be good for analysis, but they are, are, are not going to represent most voters on either side of the aisle. Right, right, right. But I mean, also, it, it's not just that they're not good at representing, but that they are bad at it in a skewed way. Right. Which I think is something people need to at least keep in mind as they watch these primaries unfold. And as they listen to these podcasts, which hopefully they're sharing on social media and rating on iTunes and telling their friends about. Exactly. Rate them, share them, tell everyone, rate them again. This has been another fun episode of The Weeds. I believe next week we'll be joined by Sarah Cliff again, finally. Yeah, special guest star. Thank God. We will maybe be allowed out of this room, which would be nice. Thank you to our producer, AC Valdez. Weeds is a co-production of Vox.com, which you should all be reading and liking on Facebook and Panoply. And we will see you next time.